From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Today, one of the things I worry about and at the Ford Foundation I get to focus on is just how many people in our country and in many parts of the world feel invisible and feel very much like they are at the bottom. That's Darren Walker. He's president of the Ford Foundation, the $16 billion global philanthropic organization with the mission to, quote, reduce poverty and injustice, strengthen democratic values, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement. Walker, who grew up in the segregated South in the 1960s, was one of the first children to enroll in Head Start, a national early childhood education program that changed his life. Walker joins me to discuss how to recapture the hope that he felt decades ago as a child, why capitalism in its current form is not working, and whether philanthropy can help remedy its ills. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, Politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Before we get to your questions, we have some exciting news. Historians Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman, hosts of the Now and Then podcast, are having another live taping. And for the first time ever in Now and Then history, they're bringing along a guest, Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University and the author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. They'll discuss Carol's scholarship and the history of voting, issues that can speak to our current intense political landscape. The taping will stream live on both Zoom and Heather and Cafe's Facebook pages on Thursday, October 21st at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. RSVP and receive updates at cafe.com slash live. Don't miss this passionate conversation about how our past informs our present and what we can do to be best prepared for the battles over law and justice still to come. And one more thing. The final episode of this season of Up Against the Mob is live. That means you can binge the whole season wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from user at PeaceLovingRN. Hashtag AskPreet. Do you believe the subpoena will be enforced that was issued to Steve Bannon? 
He was not employed by Trump and company, neither at the time of the insurrection, nor for a long period beforehand. Thanks. Great question, and even greater Twitter handle. I appreciate that you're asking specifically about Steve Bannon and the subpoena issued to him by the 1-6 Select Committee in the House, and also that you've asked the question in the passive voice. I don't know if that was intentional or not. Obviously, the committee that issued the subpoena to Bannon and others want compliance with the subpoena, both the submission of documents in response, submission to deposition testimony, and perhaps open hearing testimony as well. As you know, Steve Bannon has, on the instructions of former President Trump, said that he will not comply under some dubious theory, and dubious is very charitable, of executive and other privileges. The question is, who will enforce the subpoena, which is why I thought it was interesting you asked the question in the passive voice. As we said before, on this podcast, and as I discussed with Joyce Vance this week on the Cafe Insider podcast, there are really only three options. One is Congress enforce it itself based on an inherent ability to hold someone in contempt of Congress that is never used. And I think that we don't have systems in place to cause that to happen now, but I guess it's possibly on the table. The other is to go through the regular court system, civilian court system. And the third way to compel compliance is to refer the matter criminally to the Department of Justice and see if the DOJ will file criminal contempt proceeding because it's actually a violation of a federal statute to flout a subpoena from Congress. As we've also discussed here and elsewhere, that is a power that's almost never used. The reason that I thought it was interesting that you isolated Steve Bannon, because among all the subpoenas that have been issued, probably the weakest form of resistance based on law and facts and precedent is the one being asserted by Steve Bannon, because as you very smartly point out, he was not employed by the White House. He was not in the executive branch. The executive privilege and other related privileges only apply to communications between and among people who can enjoy an executive privilege, and that means people who are in the executive branch. So the lawyer for Steve Bannon, who's claiming that he doesn't have to appear on instructions by Trump, is acting in bad faith. Every argument in favor of his not having to come testify is an act in bad faith. So what you have here is sort of a combination of extraordinaries. You have the extraordinary event that was the insurrection of 1-6. You have the extraordinary committee that has been set up to try to find out the facts and details and the causes of that event on January 6th. And then you have an extraordinary refusal to testify based on an extraordinary instruction by a former president who doesn't have the power to assert executive privilege. That power is in the hands of the existing president because the privilege covers the office, not the person. So at the end of that combination of extraordinary circumstances, my view is, even though it has been seldom used before, and it's a pretty extraordinary remedy to get involved in, that this is a case where if there is a bad faith refusal to testify or provide documents based on nonsense and BS interpretation of the law, I think this is a case where the enforcement of the subpoena should go into that category three by the bringing of charges for criminal contempt. We'll see if Merrick Garland and the Justice Department have that same view. This question comes in an email from Jennifer. Hi, Preet, longtime listener. How concerned are you about what is being called the slow-moving coup? Bill Maher laid out the doomsday scenario last week, and it got a lot of attention. So Jennifer, thanks for your question. I was actually on the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer this week, and he, Wolf, played a clip of Bill Maher and asked me about it, wanted to know my reaction. Bill Maher said, among other things, Here's the easiest three predictions in the world. Trump will run in 2024. He will get the Republican nomination. And whatever happens on election night, the next day he will announce that he won. I don't see how any reasonable thinking person who understands even a little bit about the psychology of Trump, about the psychology of his supporters, and the dynamic that has been in existence since the 2020 election 
could think anything other than those three conclusions and predictions are correct. I've long said that I think the most important thing to Trump in the world is not necessarily power, but attention. He succeeded as president in becoming the most talked about person on the face of the earth, which I think for him is an end in and of itself. And I just don't see a way when it comes to decision time about 2024 that he's going to cede power, authority, influence, and leadership of the party to someone like Josh Hawley. It just boggles the mind. And so not only is the scenario that Bill Maher sketches out not outlandish, it seems almost certain. And that's a problem for a lot of reasons. Fiona Hill, who's going to be a guest on the show in the coming weeks, has, I think, accurately described the 1-6 insurrection as kind of a dress rehearsal for the future. So I think all these things that we're talking about, the big lie before and after the 2020 election, much of which we're still learning about. We have a report from the Senate Judiciary Committee chaired by Dick Durbin that gives new details about the kinds of things that were going on behind the scenes to try to get Georgia and other states to undo the election results there. We know more about what Mike Pence, how much pressure he was facing to undo the election results. That's important as a matter of history and accountability to learn what has happened in the past. But as Bill Maher points out, and others are increasingly pointing out, the more important issue is, what does it portend for the future? What does it portend for 2022? What does it portend for 2024? And the number of people who subscribe to the big lie in the Republican Party, in Trump's party, is going up. And the one thing about a dress rehearsal is you catch your mistakes and you learn better strategies for the real thing. And one thing that Trump and company have learned is you need very, very loyal people who care about Trump more than they care about their oath of office, more than they care about the rule of law. And it was some people who had a view that their oath was more important than the president that stopped a coup in the making. Trump won't make that mistake the next time. We are already seeing in state after state after state in this country, officials who are loyal to Trump and Trumpism trying to take the reins of power, changing of some of the laws to allow state legislatures to simply overturn a fair and just election result. All of these things are happening. You know, one of the things that I don't necessarily agree with Bill Maher about, he, he said that in 2022, in all likelihood, the Democrats will lose the House and Kevin McCarthy will be the Speaker of the House. I have said, and some people find this controversial and also outlandish, I have said that there's nothing in the law or in the Constitution that prevents Donald Trump from being the next Speaker of the House. Republicans in the House, if they take it back, can vote for an outside citizen to take the reins of power of that chamber. And people may think it's unusual. People may think it's crazy. I don't think it's any crazier than the idea in 2014 of Donald Trump winning the presidency in 2016. You know, and I know there are a lot of issues for people to care about and think about and worry about, but if we don't keep being vigilant, if we don't keep fighting for voting rights, if we don't keep looking for accountability for the people who caused the insurrection of January 6th, if we don't keep trying to uncover what Trump did to subvert democracy and violate the rule of law, if we don't keep doing all those things and we don't keep voting for the people we care about and we want to be running this country, we could be back with Trump with more power, more influence, and more anger and more craziness than we did in 2017. This question comes from Twitter user at 87rubber, who asks, do any Supreme Court justices subscribe to your podcast? Well, that's a really good question. I do know that there are a lot of members of the third branch of government, the judiciary, who subscribe and listen to the podcast. We don't get subscriber information or names, so I can't peruse a long list and see if you know Clarence Thomas is on it or not. I doubt that he is. There are a lot of district court judges, particularly in the Southern District, who I know enjoy and appreciate the podcast, and I hear from them from time to time. Sometimes because I've forgotten to say something about the law that I should have. And sometimes 
they just enjoyed a conversation we've had on Stay Tuned. I know there are some circuit court judges because they've told me that they listen to the show and appreciate the show. As for the Supreme Court, I don't know. But I do remember on one occasion when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was being honored at an event at Columbia Law School, my alma mater, she's being interviewed by Nina Totenberg on stage. There was a, a moment before that where I was allowed to go backstage and say hello to Justice Ginsburg, who I know a little bit, and Justice Elena Kagan was there. And as I said hello to Justice Kagan, who I knew from her time in the Justice Department when I was also there, and also when she was the dean of Harvard Law School, she made some comment about the fact of the podcast. She didn't say she liked it or she listened, but she made some comment about the fact of the podcast or congratulations on the podcast. And I said, well, Justice, you're free to come on anytime you want. And I regret to inform you that she made a face. So I don't know if that's a function of what she thought of the podcast or the idea of being interviewed by me in public was something that was unlikely to happen. But that's the extent of my information about whether or not anyone on the Supreme Court deigns to listen. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. My guest this week is Darren Walker. Since 2013, he served as the president of the Ford Foundation, one of the largest and most distinguished philanthropies in the world. Under Walker's leadership, the organization has prioritized reducing inequality because democracy itself, he says, hangs in the balance. Darren Walker, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Preet. I've been looking forward to this. I've I've been excited to speak to you for a long time. So there's a lot I want to talk to you about, inequality, uh, income inequality in, in particular, the nature of philanthropy, the purpose of philanthropy. But, but before we do any of that, to give folks who may not be familiar with the size and scope and scale of the Ford Foundation, could, could you give us some metrics? How big is it? How many folks do you employ? How much money do you give out in any given year? Give us some stats. Sure. Ford Foundation was founded in 1936 by Henry and Edsel Ford. Today, we are a foundation with an endowment of over $18 billion. We have an annual budget of just north of $700 million. Um, we uh, give away about 
2,000 grants a year around the world in 11 regions. So why did you choose this path? You are, like many people, including me at the moment and some other folks on this on this Zoom that we're recording, are a lapsed lawyer. How'd you go from lawyer to philanthropy? Well, I was lucky to be trained in law, but I was even luckier that I found my way to the Abyssinian Baptist Church after 10 years on Wall Street at Clary Gottlieb, a law firm, and then at UBS. And I found my way to Harlem because I wanted to work in a Black community, and in fact, the iconic uh, African-American community in this country. I had read um, in college the great Renaissance writers. I had a sort of romanticized idea of Harlem. And of course, when I arrived in New York in 1985, uh, Harlem was a very different place than the idea of Harlem that uh, had been in my head for so many years. Um, But I found my way to Abyssinian because I wanted to figure out a way to work in a Black community in New York City. And uh, I was volunteering at a school called the Children's Storefront School on 129th Street. And I just became more and more embedded in the community. I moved from downtown and midtown. I moved to 120th Street in uh, the early 1990s, which was a very different time uh, than, than, than it is today. There was no Whole Foods for sure. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't even a supermarket. There wasn't a place to, to, to send your dry cleaning. Uh, there wasn't um, the, the kinds of resources we take for granted that you see in Harlem um, today. It was a very different place. You've spoken about your experience as a young person employed as a busboy. And could you share with folks the relevance of that experience to your path? Well, the relevance of that experience is for anyone who has worked in a restaurant. And so many of us have had jobs uh, on on our journey in the food service uh, industry. And I worked at a restaurant uh, in in, uh, Baytown, Texas, where I was a teenager. And uh, when you're the bus boy, you know you're at the bottom of the organizational chart. You clean the bathrooms and you bust the tables. And your job, in part, is to be invisible. And uh, so you uh, walk around that room, taking away the things that people discard, and you do it as discreetly as possible. And you're simply not noticed. You're often not acknowledged. Your dignity is not necessarily recognized. And uh, that's your task. Today, one of the things I worry about and that the Ford Foundation I get to focus on is just uh, how many people in our country and in many parts of the world feel invisible, feel uh, that their dignity is not acknowledged, feel that they're not heard, and feel very much like they're at the bottom with very little opportunity uh, to rise. I knew when I was 13 that uh, I was uh, going uh, to be successful in some way. I knew that because I felt, even though I was poor, single mother, and many of the data points that might indicate downward mobility, I knew that I was upwardly mobile because I knew my country was cheering me on. And I felt that America wanted me to succeed, even as a little boy. And so uh, for me today, uh, 
I, I hope uh, that at Ford, we can do uh, our small part in bringing hope and opportunity uh, and, and to allow people to have the kinds of dreams that I had as a young boy. Do you think, I think it's implicit in what you're saying, that we have less empathy now, that America is not cheering for people like you in the way that they did when you were young? I certainly believe that, and in fact, the data show that. Young people today do not feel that America is cheering them on. How could you feel America is cheering you on if uh, the idea of higher education, which for me, there was no barrier to higher education other than my ambition and how well I did in school. And today, there, there, I mean, the idea of uh, a six-figure debt uh, to go to college uh, is is overwhelming and and so how would you feel uh, your country was cheering you on if if education uh, cost that much uh, how would you feel that your country is cheering you on if you are uh, low income uh, a poor white person living in rural America dealing with the opioid epidemic uh, that has been unleashed and that we knew about uh, and we allowed it to persist uh, how would you feel if you were a young a black or brown man or woman um, um, in in our criminal justice system. Uh, We know that you would feel uh, burdened and you would feel discriminated against because in fact, you are being discriminated against in our system. So I worry, Preet, that uh, young people don't feel that that their country is cheering them on. You mentioned college and regular listeners of the show will know that this is a subject I keep turning back to again and again, because there are people who think that, you know, given how much uh, space there is in colleges and given the cost and given that two thirds of Americans don't go for one reason or another, that we, we place too much emphasis on higher education. Do you think that's true or should we continue to place a lot of emphasis on higher education as a path to mobility, upward mobility rather than downward mobility? Uh, or should we think of ways as a society and perhaps even the Ford Foundation as a philanthropy to make sure that we're addressing people who are not going to or ever going to go to college and cheer them on in some different way? Well, well, of course, uh, not everyone is going to be college bound. And as you said, we've got two thirds of Americans who do not achieve a, a, a four year degree. And let's also be clear that Mobility can come in the form of just a simple certification. You don't need a degree to be in uh, a four-year bachelor's degree to be employed in many uh, high-paying jobs. So I'm not uh, an advocate that uh, we should have universal uh, a BA degree for everyone. I am an advocate that people should be able to maximize their aspirations uh, with the certification, the the credentialing that is necessary in order to have a skill, to have a a livelihood. Um, And and so, no, I don't, I would would agree with those who who would say, let's make sure we've got strong vocational programs. Um, There are technical 
uh, credentials that are not a BA, uh, a bachelor's degree that uh, one can pursue. The problem, Preet, is that much of those, many of those programs are for-profit programs. And so we have an educational system that uh, has turned what ought to be a public good into a matter of private finance. And again, the predators uh, take advantage of primarily uh, low-income people of color, uh, low-income rural white Americans, um, and and they are doubly disadvantaged. Do you you think the colleges, speaking of of the third of folks who go to college, and then some remainder of the other two-thirds who just can't find a spot, do do you think that higher education centers, public universities in particular, should, as some people advocate, scale up, in other words, you know, double or even triple the sizes of their classes and make curriculums available either in person or remotely so that more people have the chance to get that degree? There's no doubt. There is no doubt that we made progress uh, around uh, digital uh, curricula and delivering uh, high quality, high impact education um, online. There's no doubt that that has been achieved and you've got um, some real um, stellar uh, outstanding um, schools like uh, Arizona State University is one of many examples. Um, and, and so I do believe there are ways to scale. Um, I think the need to scale public investment and those public institutions, um, they're the only mechanism that will get us to reaching uh, the populations that need to be reached. And again, I come back to the problem of the system which is uh, because there's not enough room in the public system, um, so many uh, people turn to to these private for-profit schools, some of which um, are reputable, many of which are not reputable and are predators. Now, there's one challenge among others, I guess, when we talk about scaling up universities and and doubling the class size, for example, and that is the, the alumni of some of those elite schools or public universities. I wonder if they will have the view that that in some way lessens their degree, makes their degree less elite if you double the class size. Have you seen that kind of reaction in either that context or other contexts? People want to maintain some amount of exclusivity at the cost of not letting other people achieve what they achieve. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely makes sense. And it absolutely happens. There's no doubt that Efforts to uh, provide online uh, education from um, at elite private institutions. There's no doubt that uh, that 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 pushback is real. Um, and the reality is, the elite privates um, they they really don't have an imperative, um, a reason, um, or want to prioritize that. I mean, it's just not who they are as institutions. Um, because, wait, but and, let, can we pause on that? Because sure, I, I guess I don't understand. I mean, I went to an elite college and law school, and you'd like to think that these uh, institutions of higher learning have as part of their mission public good. So it's interesting when you say, and and maybe 
it's a stated mission, but they fall short in practice. But wouldn't you think that the great institutions of higher learning in this country should should have that ambition and 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 rather than maintaining the status quo? Well, let's be clear. These institutions are called elite and elitist for a reason. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, they they have no imperative to not be anything but that. They do not want the the value of their education diluted people holding um, the same degree that they do. And uh, it's going to take a lot of uh, disruption to get uh, private elites, you know, the Ivies, the small liberal arts colleges uh, to, to, to move in this direction. The reality is that most people uh, and particularly most uh, minority people and most people we're concerned about getting on the mobility escalators are not going to those schools. And in fact, we know from the data that the the schools that actually provide more upward mobility are not uh, the Ivies and, and, and the liberal art elites. It's CUNY. It's the Cal State system. Uh, those institutions move more people from the uh, second and third quartiles uh, up to the top than, than do even, um, even the elites. So let's focus on those institutions and strengthen them and provide them with the necessary resources so that they can scale and provide an education to more uh, students. I want to go back to something that you said earlier about the, the change over time in whether or not people are getting cheered on like you felt that you were by America. And so some things have gone backwards. I think that's clear. And as you point out, the data show that, but some things arguably have gotten better. And, and one of those things is personal to you. I know you think about, and you've talked about a little bit of the bizarreness of the legacy of running a Ford foundation that was founded by a family that, you know, who had members who might not be pleased with who leads the Ford Foundation now. And this is the way you put it. And I found this fascinating quote, Henry Ford never imagined that a black gay man would be president of this foundation. But that's what, that's what's great about American philanthropy, that it continues to evolve. Is that evolution? Is that irony? Or is that, is that a one-off in your case? I think it's two of the three. I think there's no doubt that it's the evolution. And I could have said, uh, that's what is great about America, not just American philanthropy. I think, of course, there's some irony, but there is much irony in American history if you compare the arc of that history over 200 plus years. Uh, there is absolute irony in the fact that I lived as a boy in Liberty County, the county seat liberty did not allow African-Americans to reside there. So there was irony yeah. in the fact that <laughs> we had that. to live in the next town, which was the quote unquote colored town in Liberty County, Ames, Texas. Um, so there's lots of irony in our history. I think Henry Ford would certainly be surprised. Uh, I think uh, John D. Rockefeller would have been surprised that 
a Jewish woman in Judith Roden was the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Andrew Carnegie would have been surprised that Bartan Gregorian, an Armenian immigrant, uh, was heading his foundation. So that is remarkable that we we can evolve. I think, Preet, what worries me is at every turn, there have been entrenched stakeholders in the status quo in keeping things the way uh, they are or uh, bringing us back uh, to a, an earlier time that time when fewer of us were allowed in the circle of opportunity. And that's what I worry about. So what's interesting about that is the status quo stakeholders, as you refer to them, happen to be among the very people who largely fund philanthropy in this country. And I know from <laughs> uh, watching you and hearing you over, over time that you're, you're very aware, you're acutely aware of, of the paradox of your perch a little bit that capitalism has failed a lot of people, but it was capitalism that birthed the Ford Foundation and many other significant foundations also. How, how do you think, explain to folks how you think about that paradox and how you sort of thread the needle of being critical of a system that funds the work you do or has funded the work you do? Well, let me be clear. I am a capitalist and I believe that- So am I. Capitalism- we, can still, we can still say that, right? Absolutely. Okay. And, um, but we, if we do believe in capitalism, we have to also acknowledge that the kind of capitalism we have today is not generating the kind of shared prosperity and is generating too much inequality. And so there is a difference between believing in capitalism and worrying about inequality run amok. And I think uh, that's what I worry about, the kind of inequality that is so harmful to our aspirations, uh, to our belief that uh, it's possible for uh, mobility. Um, and, and so uh, many of the people um, you and I know who have succeeded in this system, the challenge is they need to acknowledge the shortcomings of the system that produce their wealth. And that's where the rub is. Right? I mean, they are, it is, it's the difference between what I call the sort of generosity paradigm and the justice paradigm, right? Andrew Carnegie and Rockefeller and the others were very comfortable they, they didn't see a real problem with the levels of inequality. They, their view was just we need more people to give and to be charitable. And my view is really informed by the words of Dr. Martin Luther King on the subject of philanthropy in which he said the following. Philanthropy is commendable, but it should not allow the philanthropist to overlook the economic injustice which makes philanthropy necessary. And so what Dr. King was saying was something different. What he was saying was we need to move from charity and generosity to dignity and justice. And if we as philanthropists take a lens of dignity and justice, we're going to challenge some of the very 
systems and structures that produce inequality. And, and so that's a, that's a very different uh, experience as a philanthropist, as a donor. You know, when you give, even if, you know, you think about, you know, walking into Macy's and giving at Christmas the Salvation Army guy ringing the bell, well, we feel good about that, right? When you write a check um, for the homeless shelter or for uh, a foster youth program, you feel good about yourself. And you should feel good about yourself. This isn't about making you feel bad about being wealthy or being a donor, but you should not simply be comfortable and feel good about writing a check to a homeless shelter. Justice will, will demand that you think about why is there so much homelessness in this city? And when you see that person on the street in New York City, as we see all over our city, you're, you don't just say that, oh, what a shame there, but for the grace of God go I. I mean, you actually say there's something unjust about a, a city, a country where this many people can live on the street and it become normalized, where literally we just walk over them. If you're having to climb over people to just go about your daily business. So that should incentivize people who engage in some charity. Then they should think about the structural reasons for those problems, income inequality, homelessness, whatever other problems ail one's community or one's country. And, and so in that sense, in a way, shouldn't people be incentivized to spend scarce resources of time, attention, and, and money that they have working on structural s- solutions as opposed to contributing to philanthropy? Does that make sense? Well, I think people can work on structural change and they can work at a sort of community level. I mean, I'll give you a very... Uh, concrete example. I have a very successful friend who is, uh, you know, has said to me on many occasions, Darren, I'm not interested in uh, education reform writ large, all the schools of New York City. I'm focusing on uh, a set of uh, charter schools in Brooklyn that are uh, almost 100% uh, uh, free lunch, low-income kids. I want to get those kids you know, a hundred a year into college. He's not focused on the structural problems of, uh, of, of K through 12 and the need for reform. He's focused on a specific school in a specific neighborhood. And good for him and good for those families that he's decided to do that. And I don't want to uh, get into a binary where what he's doing is not as important as what we're doing, et cetera. But I do think we need to be doing both. Uh, we, we need to have a focus on uh, the system. And then we need to have people who are working at a community level, one person at a time, uh, making a difference in the life. And that's what we can do as individuals. You, you or I as an individual can do that, can change one life. That's philanthropy. That's a major contribution. But an institution like the Ford Foundation 
or the Gates Foundation have an obligation to be working at scale and looking for uh, lasting, sustainable, significant uh, solutions that, that, that address the problem and that reach and touch millions of people. Stay tuned for more discussion. We'll be right back after a short break. You've characterized the business of philanthropy in various ways. Sometimes they seem to be at odds with each other. So you have said, for example, in in philanthropy, we're in the business of hope. And I want to know what you mean by that. But you've also said much harm has been done in the name of philanthropy. And further, you've said that there is a problem of arrogance often in philanthropic work. What do you mean by all that? Well, there's no doubt that when you provide a scholarship, as I was provided by a wealthy Texas family that had been set up to uh, recognize uh, Texas uh, promising, I forgot the, tire, the, the, the term it was, uh, in recognition of promising Texans, uh, Texas young men or something like that, you know? So I got this scholarship to go to the University of Texas and, and that, uh, was uh, life-changing. That gave me hope. That's the kind of thing, whether it's giving scholarships or uh, under, underwriting uh, programs in the neighborhood or uh, starting Head Start, which is what the Ford Foundation helped to do, That's that gives people hope. Um, and there's no doubt about that. But there's also harm uh, that philanthropy can do. Um, and uh, we've got you know, a lot of records of, of that. We've seen initiatives that were top down that weren't considered uh, by and with the people in the very communities and th- that were not sustained that, and didn't work. Uh, we've seen in the early uh, 20th century philanthropists coming together to, to support the American eugenics movement. We've just had the 100th anniversary of the, the, the infamous meeting of American uh, eugenics uh, society that was funded by philanthropy, Rockefeller, Roosevelt, Russell Sage. I mean, you name the names and the, the gold standards were all behind this movement in the name of philanthropy. So there's a lot to, to, to learn from that. There's a lot to learn from our arrogance that comes with wealth and privilege. I mean, how many times have I heard some wealthy philanthropists say, well, uh, if I could just get this organization or this system to do what I want, because I know what, what, it, what it needs, or the number of people I was in a meeting once and they said, well, we know, and the people in the room were all a group of wealthy people, we know how to spend this money better than government does. And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea because you're a group of tax billionaires. You think you know how to do that better than our democratic representatives. When people say that and they exhibit that kind of paternalism or arrogance or whatever you want to call it, what do you say to them? Uh, and are there things that you wish you could say, but you don't? Oh, there are things often that I wish I could say, but I know that if I say that, it won't, it might give me satisfaction, but it won't move the dial or achieve the end I want. So I learned a long time ago to to manage 
that compulsion uh, because there are times when you literally uh, just want to tell people what you really think. And, and, and so I don't do that. I, what I say to that's people, an, that's kind of an amazing thing just to, because, you know, your position is, is paradoxical in ways we've discussed and in other ways as well. You know, you're Darren Walker, you're the president of the Ford foundation. That's an enormously powerful, influential spot in the world. And yet it sounds like there are occasions where you don't think you can speak as candidly as you want to. Oh, it's not that it's not that um, I don't speak as candidly. I speak candidly. It's how I speak candidly. I think it is important if you keep your eye on the prize. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was I was with a group of people a year ago. Some of them complaining uh, that about the taxes in the city, and um, and a num- and one person was one guy. With, these were all very successful people, and uh, one guy was saying, "Well." You know, Larry, Larry has decided he's moving to Palm Beach. And another guy said, yeah, and Jerry, Jerry's going to move to Austin. They're just, we're just tired of the taxes. We're tired, you know. And, and, and as people were talking, I, I interjected and said, well, that's really interesting that we're in the middle of a pandemic. And this would be the thing you're most concerned about. Uh, I'm, I'm just surprised. Uh, did I misread that? You know, I mean... We're in the middle of a pandemic, and what you're worried about are your taxes. Really? I mean, and, and so and what was the response? And and the response was, oh no, this is you're right, Darren. That's not our high our we we're concerned about a lot of things. And I said, Oh, well, it's dominated the discussion at dinner. And I just wanted to make sure I, I would hate to think that actually. Here we are sitting in this beautiful home in the Hamptons and around dinner and in the middle of a pandemic, what we're, what's going to dominate the conversation is a concern about paying taxes. Wow. Speaking of taxes, this may be a little bit out of left field, but you just made me think of it. Do you, do you think there should always be a, a tax deduction for charitable giving? Yes, I do. I think there is a... This is an, a, a unique American invention, which I think has worked tremendously effectively. And I absolutely believe we should continue it. Uh, I think there's some tightening and uh, modification that uh, to, uh, that could be done to tweak it and make it even more impactful. But absolutely. I mean, if you look at the rest of the world, I mean, there are the, the Europeans um, and the British are trying to figure out how to do a system more like our system. Um, the thing that I worry about, Preet, however, is the ways in which charitable uh, mechanisms can be manipulated and can be used to to be to, to shelter wealth rather than to put wealth out the door to to charitable purpose. So that's what I worry about. But I absolutely uh, believe in it and think it's essential. And going back to to a theme we've been discussing, that you know, there are people who look at philanthropists, people who have a lot of money, and call themselves philanthropists, and do good and give money to good causes and help people in certain contexts. But they got to where they got, some of them, by not treating their workers well, or by taking advantage of people, or by manipulating the system on Wall Street. Sometimes even outright 
cheating and had sanctions imposed against them. And there's a view on the part of some folks, regular folks, that this is an enterprise, not so much of, of charity and philanthropy, but of you know, reputation laundering. Is that fair with respect to some of these folks? Absolutely, it's fair. And uh, there's no doubt, if we're to have a really honest, candid conversation, that reputation laundering has been a part of the, the story of American philanthropy from the person who is the gold standard of American philanthropy, John D. Rockefeller, who in his time was the most hated, reviled, despised man in America. There is no doubt that he was. And yet, when anywhere in the world you go today and the idea of what is the gold standard of philanthropic excellence, the name Rockefeller is the name. And so John D. Rockefeller's son understood this and in part doing great work, but always in the name of his father. Uh, and that is why we see the Rockefeller name plastered all over the planet. And, and so while I would like to think that, you know, sometimes I think we, we, we think that, you know, some of our contemporaries who are unsavory, if, if we want to use that term, and, and turn to philanthropy, well, there's a long history of that yeah. in this country. Are, are, names, are, are names important? I mean, those legacies are important. You know, there was a debate not long ago over the question of removing Woodrow Wilson's name from the public policy school at Princeton. Has, there, has anyone ever argued or considered seriously changing the name of your foundation? Well, there certainly have been people who have suggested that Henry Ford was not worthy of having a foundation, a charitable foundation named for him, just as John D. Rockefeller, the same argument was made, which is why he couldn't get a charter to give away his money. Um, but, but there's no doubt that it's, it, 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 is, it has been live. I, don't, I haven't heard it recently, I mean, in, in recent years, but there was a time, absolutely. Do you find that, do you find that silly? And beside the point, or do you find it worthy argument? What do you think of it? Well, I mean, I, I certainly um, don't, I don't, it's not that I find it silly. I just don't find the conversation about philanthropy names. I think these other questions of public institutions, not private, I mean, these are all private foundations. Um, and so changing the name um, is different. The conversation about changing the name is different than, you know, changing the name of a, a school. Uh, changing the name of of a college or or, or a public square, et cetera. So I think they're, they're they're different. It's apples and oranges. Can I ask you a social question about how money is raised for many for many charitable causes? I certainly get invited to things. I, I got to wear my tuxedo for the first time during the pandemic, so I've amortized it a little bit more, huh. uh, which is how I think about the purchase of an expensive tuxedo. And it was a great event for a very good cause. And it was held at a fancy place. Uh, and there were, you know, people were in ball gowns uh, and tuxedos. And there was a nice dinner. And there was um, top shelf alcohol everywhere. And it seems to me, I'm not denigrating that event or any of the others that I've been to, and including the ones that don't invite me. 
Why is it the case, and I've talked frankly with some people about this, why is it the case in a metropolitan area like New York, San Francisco, LA, that in order to raise money for a good cause, so much money has to be expended and and so much um, sort of red carpet culture has to be injected into that? Is that just the nature of how people with means contribute? Well, there's no doubt that um, this is consistent with history. Right? So this is not a new phenomenon to the 2000s uh, in, in New York. Uh, there's no, uh, we have to face the reality that wealthy people like to celebrate. Part of that celebration is charitable and generosity and giving and wanting to genuinely make a difference in bettering the world. That, 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 is, that is a driver. But, 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 but couldn't, it, couldn't you have a successful, could you have a successful gala at like Five Guys Burgers or not? Yeah, so, so let's talk about that because that's often said, I've often heard people say, you know, I'd rather just stay home and write a check. Actually, there have been some organic experiments like this. I mean, there was a, a, a major organization that tried that and people didn't give as much. Yeah. People didn't give as much in part because in seeing their name, their names weren't being seen as much. And so when people don't see, you know, so when you go to at your at the gala you attended, somewhere in the program, there were the top underwriters, yeah. the people who bought hundred thousand dollar tables, and then there are the people who bought fifty thousand dollar tables. Yeah. And then and it was all and there they, for and public and display. You see, but you know the and so the competition, yeah. the competition among, <laughs> you know, um, the the uh, it, and it's and it's there are some benefits and some organizations that do this really well that understand that wealthy people are competitive and and Robinhood is great at this. Uh, United Jewish Appeal is great at this. They understand that people want to give and that they're competitive at giving. I think you make an, an incredibly important point, generally that the idea of competition is not limited to for-profit enterprises in the marketplace. I, I used to make this point when I was U.S. attorney. You know, um, federal law enforcement agencies are competitive with each other. Absolutely. U.S. attorney's offices, and we, are, we were in pursuit of justice and good causes, we were competitive uh, with the Eastern District of New York. And, you know, that's not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and, and, you know, one other good thing, about, I, I think that it is important when you're trying to draw people into your cause and get them to contribute for there to be a gathering. Because what I find is you get a lot of energy from the other people who care deeply about the cause exactly. and learn more about the cause and meet some of the people who have benefited from it and meet some of the people who are in the field doing the actual work. There's nothing more inspiring than that. I mean, to me, the best part of those events is hearing about the great work and, and the lives that have been changed for the better by the organization that you support. I just also wonder why, why I have to be in black tie. <laughs> yes, no, I, and I, I agree with that. I think the thing that uh, we, you have to manage that is that it doesn't become a kind of woe is me show and tell by some you know group of black single mothers or young Latino kids oh, yeah, uh, who yeah. are sort of involved in the kind of performative, we're poor, woe is us, so that, you know, 
uh, affluent white people can clap and feel good about themselves. I think we, you know, that I've I've experienced that, which is a, a kind of an extreme of what you what you describe, which is a good thing, which is is truly enriching. Um, that and that can actually happen at these events. Can you, in the few minutes we have left, can you engage me in a far fetched but not completely outlandish thought experiment? Absolutely. Suppose, suppose, suppose tomorrow. Well, not tomorrow. Suppose some sometime in the future. I managed to get a number of people together and could raise money for my own foundation. So I'm starting from scratch. There are all sorts of other foundations that are out there doing great work. And I want to become a philanthropist. And let's say hypothetically, let's make it a fairly large number, not large by Ford Foundation standards, but by normal human standards. Let's say I raised $100 million to start a fund. And I came to you and said, Darren, uh, Obi-Wan, what is your advice for someone who would have that unbelievably privileged opportunity with that amount of money? What are your three pieces of advice to such a person? One would be to have clarity about the impact you want to see in the world. Two, to have a sense of the area where you want that impact to be, whether it's education, the environment, et cetera. And three, to approach your foundation's work with humility. Those would be my three bits of advice. And if I asked you the question, I know you have a parochial interest in this, and I said, look, you know, I, I have these 50 people that have that have come across who all want to do something good with the vast fortunes that they've accumulated, and they're capable of putting together $100 million. And I said, should we give the $100 million to some foundation that's already doing good work or start a new one? What would your answer be? My answer would be work with existing institutions who are already having impact, add capital to their work, intensify it, scale it, accelerate it for impact. One of the real challenges in philanthropy is uh, what I call the egos and logo problem. People wanting to uh, see themselves represented and and not focusing enough on on the impact and how we get to impact. I had a, a, a person who came to see me after visiting Africa and said, you know, my my family and I, we, you know, we've got this foundation. We're going to start giving away money. We've got a big liquidity event coming up. We've decided we want to build health clinics in rural East Africa where we love to go and have been going for years, et cetera, et cetera. And my question to him was, first, who asked you to do this? Like, what Kenyan asked you to come and build health clinics in rural Kenya and Tanzania? And have you talked to the people who are already the multitudes of health, public health programs in Eastern Africa? And they have done very little work on that. And and for me, I always start with that question, you know, why are you doing it? Who asked you to do it? Uh, Who are you consulting with to come up with uh, your hypothesis of what is needed in, in this geography. 
Um, and I think what, what I often find is that people want to, I mean, again, when you look at, for example, at what Mark Zuckerberg wanted to do in Newark schools, I, I appreciate and acknowledge uh, Mark's desire to want to help uh, a troubled urban school district. But he knew nothing about urban schools. Um, he'd been educated in private schools his entire life. And while I understand he was relying on people who came to him, he, he really didn't know enough to say, I'm going to give $100 million to, which is what he did, to, uh, to this project. And so I, I do think we need to, to, to really make sure we do our homework um, before we step out and say, this is what, this is what I'm going to change. Yeah. Money, money is, doesn't answer all the questions. Can, can you sp- mention public health? Can you speak briefly about the global vaccine initiative that you're engaged in? Absolutely. I mean, Preet, the reality of what is happening around the world as a result of this pandemic is existential. There is no doubt that uh, we in this country have been challenged by it, that we are clearly not where we need to be. I think the president's initiative has kept a focus on it. And, and we know that there are a lot of uh, headwinds that, that seemingly get erected um, to, to keep us from increasing the, the vaccination rates at the, at the pace we need. But at this point, you know, two thirds of Americans who are eligible have received at least one jab. In, in many countries in Africa, the, that, that number is two to 5%. And the reason for that is because they have no access. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies have prioritized uh, the wealthy countries who could pay. And, and so we have this massive inequality in vaccine distribution that mirrors and only compounds the larger inequality that we see between the developing world and the, and, and the EU and, and the U.S., for example. So we need, and we've been working at grassroots level with, uh, with Charlize Theron and, and her foundation in Africa, particularly in South Africa, at the community level, and at the grass tops uh, with the IMF, with Gates, Rockefeller, Open Society, and other foundations to design a financing mechanism that the G20 hopefully will agree to and align uh, both resources, the policy changes around IP sharing and intellectual property sharing, for example, that is going to be essential if we are to increase the, the, the rates of vaccination in the rest of the world, which we have to do because we cannot inoculate ourselves to continued viruses that, that will be developed right. if the rest of the world is not vaccinated. That's just common sense. I mean, the whole reason we're in this mess in the first place is because this is a communicable disease that went from China all the way around the, the world in, in nanoseconds, you know, seemingly. That's right. And, and, and there's, but there's a solution to this. I mean, here's the reality that is so frustrating is um, the solutions are within our reach. It's do we have the will 
And does this country, uh, which we pride ourselves on being the most generous nation in the world, uh, the place that truly is a beacon on the hill, and yet on this issue, while I applaud President Biden's a recent announcement, we are well over a billion dollars committed to this. It's gonna, it's gonna be a multiple of that number if we are to really get this under control globally. Darren Walker, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for spending some time and thank you for all your good work. Thank you, Preet. I've enjoyed this very much. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Darren Walker. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.